Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Christine Abley, a faculty fellow at New England Law Boston. We'll be discussing her article, Adjusting Pre- and Post-Judgment Interest Rates for Consumer Debt Collection Actions, which was recently published in the Tennessee Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Christine, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me here today. I really appreciate it. Christine, it's great to have you on the show to talk about your article. But before we do, I understand that you are going on the law teaching market this year. Would you like to take a moment to introduce yourself to any listeners who might be on law faculties? Yes, thank you so much. My research and teaching interests include contracts, business associations, compliance, and professional responsibility. And I have taught contracts last year and I'm teaching it again this year. Okay, great. So if there are any listeners who are on hiring committees or involved in their hiring processes, keep a a lookout for Christine's FAR form, which will, I assume, probably be going out soon if it hasn't already gone out by the time that this episode is being published. Now, Christine, turning to your article, it's about a topic that I've always been a little bit curious about, so I was excited to read it. You're focused on pre- and post-judgment interest. Could you maybe introduce just what pre- and post-judgment interest are, in what circumstances do they arise, and what's some of the history and policy motivation between these features of the law? Pre-judgment interest is the interest that's awarded to a successful party in a lawsuit, and that accrues up to the date the final judgment is entered. So the start date for pre-judgment interest can vary. It can be the date of a wrongful act, the date of a loss, the date of notice of the suit, or the date of filing, depending on the jurisdiction. On the other hand, post-judgment interest is interest that accrues from the time judgment is entered until it's actually paid. So if there's an appeals period, post-judgment interest does generally continue to accrue through that appeals period if the appeal is, in fact, ultimately unsuccessful. The core idea behind pre- and post-judgment interest for both of those rates of interest is that the prevailing party should be compensated for the loss of the use of funds before they are paid. So I'm going to talk a bit more about the other purposes that state legislatures have pointed to when they talk about pre- and post-judgment interest. But generally, that's the motivating idea behind pre- and post-judgment interest. Could you walk us through just how, in terms of in the litigation process, how pre- and post-judgment interest work? Is it a fixed rate of interest that courts are applying? Is there some sort of floating rate that they apply? Can you walk us through just an example of what a court might do if it is assessing either pre- or post-judgment interest uh, to one party? Sure. So the federal courts have a statute for assessing post-judgment interest in civil cases, and that's set at the average one-year constant maturity nominal treasury yield that's published by the Federal Reserve System. Currently, that rate is actually quite low. It's around 0.07%. There's no similar statute for pre-judgment interest in federal cases, but it can be awarded at the discretion of the court when there's no statute that precludes it. That's the federal system. On the state side, state pre- and post-judgment interests, they're governed by statutes specific to each state. Generally, these statutes are constructed in one of two ways. Either they set a fixed rate for pre- and post-judgment interest, or they set a floating rate, but with an additional fixed premium attached. 
The floating rate can be a one-year constant treasury yield used in the federal system. It can be that same measure. But some states use a different floating benchmark, including the prime rate and also the Federal Reserve discount rate. One example to think about this is Iowa. That's one state that uses one of these floating rates with a fixed premium attached. So it's constructed by using the one-year treasury constant maturity plus an additional 2%. We mentioned at the top that one function of pre- and post-judgment interest is to compensate one party for the time value of the money for a period for which they don't have access to funds that they otherwise should, the judgment amount. I wonder if we could talk about some other purposes that judgment interest serves. Uh, Are there other purposes? So for example, does it serve to punish some parties? Does it have a punitive effect? Does it serve to discourage frivolous appeals or to encourage prompt payment of judgments? Or could it have some secondary effects on decisions on the part of plaintiffs? For example, Perhaps I'm a plaintiff and I want to delay filing a suit so as to collect maybe an above market interest rate on a pre-judgment interest. How does that work? And are there some secondary purposes or secondary effects that we want to be aware of when we talk about judgment interest? Generally, when courts and legislatures talk about the purpose of pre and post judgment interest, you're correct in that they do generally focus on the time value of money, this primary purpose of compensating the prevailing party for the time they did not have the use of these funds. In many states, that is the only purpose for pre and post judgment interest. And courts and legislatures have said, this is the only purpose we're going to consider as legitimate. Some jurisdictions, however, do state that there are other purposes that should be served by these statutes as well. So for prejudgment interest, this can include reducing a defendant's incentive to delay litigation. It can encourage parties to settle meritorious claims as soon as reasonably possible. And for post-judgment interest, this can really encourage the prompt payment of the judgment. Depending on the particular type of case, we can think about whether these purposes are appropriate or maybe not so appropriate depending on the particular interest rate that's been selected. You note that there are a few different ways that judgment interest might be assessed or might be calculated. There's the fixed rate, there is the floating rate, and then there's a hybrid in which there is a a fixed rate, but then there's a floating on top of it. Your paper is focused on the context, and as you mentioned, there are lots of different contexts in litigation where this comes up, but you're focused on consumer debt and consumer debt collection actions. In that context, is one of the approaches fixed versus floating versus the hybrid, is one of those approaches setting interest rates better than the other? Why might that be, and what problems do you identify in the consumer debt collection context? Currently, where most states use either the hybrid method or the fixed method, these two methods do create problems in settings like the one we're currently in, where interest rates have been really low for an extended period of time. Just to give some background on this, as we talked about, the current benchmark is around 0.7%. Pre-pandemic in January 2020, it was about 1.55%, so still fairly low. The history of this is that the rate slid to historic lows in the early part of the 2010s. Going back further, in contrast, the rate was much higher in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, It was 12% in 1979, again in 1984, and it even reached up to 17% in 1981. So this problem is most acute for the fixed rates of interest. In many cases, these were set decades ago when interest rates were much higher, and so some can be 6, 8, 10, or even 12%. For example, here in Massachusetts, the pre-judgment interest rate statute was enacted in 1946. 
is amended six times after its enactment, but the last one of those changes happened in 1982. And since then, the statute hasn't in fact been changed and it's currently set at 12%. So these really high pre and post judgment interest rates are a problem because in the context of consumer debt collection actions, for a consumer who might not be invested in the stock market, they're really not going to be able to obtain these same high rates of returns through just using a savings account at their local bank. They might have been able to obtain a higher rate of interest using just a savings account in the past. But now in this interest rate environment where the rates are so low, they're really not going to be able to. And it's estimated that uh, roughly half of all households don't have anything invested in the stock market. So there are many households that aren't able to generate higher rates of return. And also it's estimated, it was estimated in 2015, that one in three households don't in fact have any savings at all. So these consumers have a really heavy burden of paying these high rates of pre and post judgment interest, as well as the underlying judgment when they aren't able to generate that level of return, or they might not have any savings to even pay the amount of the judgment itself. Another issue in the specific context of consumer debt collection actions is that judgments against consumers are often obtained by way of default judgment. And so in those types of judgments, a consumer might not be aware for some time that a judgment has been entered against them. Even though they're unaware of it, post-judgment interest continues to accrue at these very high rates. Another issue is that consumers are often unrepresented by an attorney when they're sued on debts. In these cases, where the purpose of prejudgment interest, having a high rate might be to achieve the speedy resolution of litigation, that particular purpose is counterbalanced by the importance of ensuring that a pro se litigant really does have a full opportunity to litigate. And so in those types of cases, the pressure of prejudgment interest that is far above a market rate of interest can be inappropriate. Similarly, the purpose of post-judgment interest that incentivizes a judgment debtor to pay immediately doesn't necessarily make sense when a party either doesn't know that a judgment has been entered against it or simply doesn't have the funds to pay an underlying judgment. So that purpose is really not appropriate to these types of cases. So this issue is particularly pressing, given that there's a huge number of consumer debt collection cases in the courts. The Pew Charitable Trusts have found that debt claims made one in nine civil state court cases in 1993, but those types of cases are actually up to one in four of civil state court cases by 2013. So there's been this huge growth in the number of consumer debt collection cases. We've talked about the issues for fixed rates of pre and post judgment interest, but this is also an issue, although to a lesser extent, for floating rates that have fixed premiums added. There can also be these same types of distortions in low interest rate environments. A fixed premium, they can add on anywhere from about 2 to 3 or even 6% to a floating rate. So as we talked about, the market rate of interest is currently less than 1%. Where you have a fixed premium that's 3 or 6%, the fixed premium actually becomes a much more significant portion of the pre- or post-judgment interest rate and really drive the burden that's assessed on consumers. And it can reach fairly high above these market rates of interest, much as the fixed rates do. My proposal that I put forth in this article would modify how pre- and post-judgment interest rates are constructed just in this context of consumer debt collection actions. I propose that where there's this fixed rate, it should be modified to a floating rate, tracking a market rate of interest, much as in the federal system. And I also propose 
that where there's a floating rate with a fixed premium attached, that that fixed premium be amended to become a percentage of a market rate of interest. So ideally, for these floating rates, these hybrid rates, the fixed premium would be eliminated entirely in order to reduce the burden on consumers. But where state legislatures have deemed that the fixed premium is in fact necessary to achieve some other purpose besides uh, the merely compensatory one, I would recommend that in order to preserve the flexibility of the interest rate, that the fixed premium be amended to the floating rate of interest. So that would both reduce the burden on the consumer. It would also make it easier for the rate to track a market rate of interest to be more applicable in a variety of market rate conditions without the legislature having to go back and amend it every time there's a significant shift in the interest rate. You identify the problem, especially in the consumer context, that judgment interest serves not so much as a compensatory tool, but as almost a windfall for creditors. And that windfall for creditors is a burden for the consumer debtors. You suggest some reforms around how judgment interest can be calculated. Have there been any reform efforts in state legislatures or in state or federal courts? What's happened on that front? And are those reforms adequate or does still more work need to be done? Yes. A number of states have taken a look at this issue and enacted some reforms. My proposal goes further than what those states have done. Uh, Specifically, Washington state lowered their post-judgment interest rate just for consumer debt collection actions. It had been at 12%. Now it's down to 9%. And similarly, Illinois, for consumer debt collection judgments of $25,000 or less, they lowered the applicable post-judgment interest rate from 9% to 5%. Uh, So that's definitely a move in the right direction. However, the 9% rate or the 5% rate still are fairly high above the market rate of interest. And so there's still a burden on the consumer in this low interest rate environment. The National Consumer Law Center has published a Model Family Financial Protection Act, and that calls for pre- and post-judgment interest rates to be floating and to be tied to the same one-year constant maturity treasury yield that's used in the federal system. The model legislation would also call for the rate not to fall below 2% or above 5% per year. So Massachusetts actually considered similar legislation to that proposal, but ultimately it didn't pass. Because these relevant rates are governed by statute, this is really legislative issue and individual state legislatures do have to take action to ameliorate this issue. So I think that these states that have done so, Washington and Illinois, have moved in the right direction. But again, we still have this problem, these rates being fixed and also being too far above the market interest rate. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation or from the paper? My paper really thinks about how pre- and post-judgment interest rates are constructed by thinking about the burden on the consumer and what rate of return the consumer practically is able to achieve in order to pay these pre- and post-judgment interest rates. And so the conclusion is that these pre- and post-judgment interest rates really do represent a significant burden for the consumer above and beyond the amount of the underlying judgment itself. For consumer debt collection cases in particular, there are these unique fairness concerns. 
because of the extremely high rates of default, the fact that attorneys often do not represent debtors in these types of cases, that these represent a specific set of cases for modifying the pre and post judgment interest rates really would make sense and be appropriate and would protect the consumer. I do believe that more states should follow the lead of Washington and Illinois and take action on this issue really by using floating rate. And then if there's a fixed premium to make that floating as well in order to make these rates more flexible and also to reduce the burden on the consumer. Our guest today has been Christine Abley, a faculty fellow at New England Law Boston. We've discussed her article, Adjusting Pre- and Post-Judgment Interest Rates for Consumer Debt Collection Actions, which was recently published in the Tennessee Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Christine, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being on the podcast today. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.